This is the last of my series of lectures on the subject of the guitar from Henry VIII to Samuel Pepys. And indeed, it's the last of my lectures as a Gresham professor since I've done 24 in over four years. But before we go any further, let me introduce, if I may, the three musicians who represent, as it were, a little restoration house band who are here today. There's James Bramley, Toby Carr, and Stephen Charlesworth. In the 1660s, a traveler who had made his home in England, in fact, visited Italy. Like many before him, he fell absolutely head over heels in love with what he saw. That must needs be a rare country, he wrote, which is pleasant and plentiful, watered with many rivers, where the eye is delighted with the most sumptuous buildings recreated with a variety of pictures and statues, the ear pleased with as great a variety of harmonious music as can be on earth. During his time in that rare country of Italy, this visitor heard many kinds of music, as you can imagine, including, as it happens, the singing of the papal choir in Rome. But when he reflected on everything that he'd heard, in all his days there. Only the guitar caught his ear. Italians, he wrote, both men and women, have a general and a natural inclination to play upon the guitar. And I admired sometimes to hear those play who never learned at all. The very inferior sort of people without any direction, only with a constant application, do get it. And they are so taken with it that as they travel upon the highway from town to town, they play upon it. And at the same, same time to play, to sing and to dance as is usual with them. This is the 17th century English belief, of course, and not only 17th century, that people in the Mediterranean countries are perpetually singing and dancing as opposed to ourselves. By 1657, and therefore late in the years of the English Republic, it was so common for English travellers to seek guitar lessons in Italy that a master of the Italian language in London, named Giovanni Torriano, provided all the necessary language you would need in a book that he called Choice Italian Dialogues, which was published in that year, 1657. One of the model conversations in the book shows a traveller seeking a music master in Rome. And in fact, you have that on the second page of your handout in a facsimile from the original publication. You've got the Italian on the left and the English on the right. And I have been really astonished in all my work on the guitar in the Baroque period, how much information was to be got from these most unlikely sources, language teaching books that contain these dialogues. So if we just look at the, the English side, we've got this debate between the master, who is clearly, I think you'll agree as we go through it, very keen to secure this pupil uh, between the master and the pupil. So, sir, says the pupil, I think you are the man who teaches my cousin Germain music. 
And the master says, I do teach him by his good pleasure. What instrument doth he play upon? On the theorbo. I would learn too a little, I loving music so, as that when I hear it, says the pupil, I am in ecstasy. You have already begun, says the master. A little upon the guitar, says the pupil, but nothing that's aught. Will you go on upon that, says the master, or will you begin upon the theorbo? Sometimes upon the one, says the pupil, sometimes on the other. Now the master becomes a little more cunning. Do me the favor to play that I may hear you. Then there's a dash representing the moment where the playing begins. Now the pinching is good and the battery too, if you mind it, says the master. The pinching is the plucking and the battery is the strumming. Pizzicata and battuta in the original Italian. So the pinching is good, and the battery too, if you mind it, you will come off wondrous well. When I do set on it, says the pupil, when I do put my mind to it, can you tune your guitar when it is out of tune, says the master. Yes, yes, says the pupil. We are halfway there, says the master. We're not anywhere near halfway, but the pupil, of course, is thoroughly encouraged, if not actually cousined by all this encouragement. It's some comfort that you encourage me, says um, the pupil. You presume too much of my abilities. Then the master says, the business is that there is discovered in you a genius and a great disposition to music ever and anon. I hear certain touches like a master. And so it goes on. <clears throat> a very cunning Italian music master. Well, just a few years after that text was written and published, the most famous diarist in the English language began his journal. You all know him, Samuel Pepys. He was, in every way, like Geoffrey Chaucer, whom he admired, one of history's great Londoners. Now, Pepys was born in 1633, not very far from here, in a court off Fleet Street. His father was a tailor, and his mother was the daughter of a Whitechapel butcher. All the slaughterhouses, of course, were out of the east of the city in the open fields and eastern areas. Pepys began his famous diary on the 1st of January, 1660, when he was a very hard-working young man on the make as an administrator, and he continued it in six rather modest-looking manuscript volumes until the 30th of May, 1669. And by that time, he feared he was going blind, and he stopped. He abandoned the work. The good news, as I'm sure you all know, is that Pepys never did, in fact, go blind. By then... He'd, that's 1669 when he stopped the journal. He'd begun what was to become a really very successful career as a naval administrator. That was how he made really his fortune. And the diary as we have it is a fair copy written in shorthand every few days from a draft compared with various ancillary papers that Pepys had about him. The complete journal runs to approximately one and a quarter million words and is the prime source for the social and at times even the political history of Restoration London 
in the 1660s, and as you will all know, is an immensely companionable and at times a disturbing read. The diary is on exhibition, by the way, at uh, Magdalen College in Cambridge, which is Pepys's old college. And I have the permission of the librarian, who's a, a friend of mine, Dr. Jane Hughes, to say that it is open to the public and you are all encouraged to go and have a look at it. Perhaps you think I'm now going to tell you that Pepys loved the guitar, was a great devotee, couldn't get enough of it, and that the evidence is there on every page of his diary. Alas, not at all. During the years covered by the journal, which I remind you goes up to the late 1660s, Pepys was either indifferent to the guitar or hated it. That's the position, of course, that many people have to guitars still. One of the things that's fascinating about the instrument is how inherently contentious it is and how it won't die despite attempts to kill it. One Sunday, for example, in the year 1666, Pepys was at Cranbourne Lodge near Windsor. And he spent the late afternoon there with some young ladies and gentlemen who, and I quote, played on the guitar and mighty merry. That really is pure peeps, that, isn't it? Played on the guitar and mighty merry. He last saw them that evening, I quote, flinging of cushions and enjoying other mad sports. Well, he may be just teetering on the verge of admiration there. You know, the guitar is a convivial sort of instrument, can be a lot of fun, can make you mighty merry. And yet he seems a little censorious, doesn't he? Other mad sports, an adult looking askance at the follies of the young. On several occasions, in fact, the diary shows that he heard the guitar played by a gentleman attending upon a great man of the royal administration, including Sir Philip Howard, captain of the king's lifeguard. But the diary gives no sign that Pepys imitated these courtiers by hiring a servant of his own during the diary period who could play the guitar while, for example, he was getting dressed in the morning, which is what Charles II did and James II, or while preparing for bed. But perhaps the most striking encounter with a guitar in the diary is the one we heard in the last of my lectures, but which I now have to give a rather unfortunate twist to. On the 5th of August, 1667, Pepys went to St. James's Palace, which of course is, is still there, with William Batten of the Navy Office to conduct business with the Duke of York, the Duke being, of course, the Lord High Admiral. Once the interview came to an end on that particular occasion, Pepys and Batten left through the Duke's dressing room and found, and I quote, Corbetta tuning his guitar. Now this, you may remember, if you were here last time, is the virtuoso Francesco Corbetta, a player of European fame in his day. And I emphasized in my last talk that the finest playing in the 1660s anywhere in Western Europe was to be heard not in Paris or Milan, that was to be heard in Whitehall. Now, Pepys admired Corbetta's talent, as well he might, but he was, and I quote, mightily troubled to see him playing so bad an instrument. In the summer of 1661, Pepys heard a French servant of Edward Montague, master of the king's horse, playing the guitar, and was struck by that same discrepancy 
between the virtues of the musician who played extreme well in Pepys' judgment and the quality of the instrument. The servant's guitar on that occasion seemed to Pepys a mere bauble, a word he employs elsewhere, for example, for fancy goods such as perfumed gloves, the senses of something small, manufactured, inconsiderable. So how does it come about that within a few years of writing in the diary for the last time, afraid of going blind, Pepys commissioned the largest repertoire of guitar-accompanied song to survive from Baroque Europe. We find it in carefully written manuscripts that are also on show with the rest of Pepys's books in the Pepys Library in Magdalen College in Cambridge. Now let's have a taste of this music straight away. Pepys was a bass, or in modern terms, I think really a baritone. And many of the songs in his manuscripts are transposed downwards to suit his voice. The guitar accompaniments are mostly, but not entirely, for Pepys to strum, sweeping the strings. And in many pieces, there is a figured bass that would have allowed him to be joined by a harpsichordist, a theorbo, as we have today, or indeed both together with a bass viol, a small restoration house band of the sort we have with us. So here is an example, Amanti Fugite. I thought we should start with something Italian. The text is by the Italian poetess, it's not on your handout, I don't think, Margarita Costa, an older contemporary of Pepys. The sense is, lovers flee from transient beauty. The fruit that falls is not sweet anymore. The setting is by Pepys's house musician, of whom we'll soon hear more, Cesare Morelli. So, I repeat the question, why did Pepys take up 
what he had once regarded as so bad an instrument. Well, part of the answer, I suppose, is an answer that we had last, last time I spoke to you, that the guitar became very fashionable at court after the restoration of 1660. You may remember that King Charles II himself owned a guitar and that it was none other than Samuel Pepys who, complaining all the way, was given the job of carrying it from the coast back to Whitehall in 1660 when the king landed for the restoration. Well, Pepys made appearances at court. We've just seen him doing one, really, going to St. James's Palace, but he was not a courtier in the strict sense. So his want of interest in this particular court diversion, led, I think it's fair to say, by the king, was not necessarily of very much account. But in the wider world, which Pepys inhabited much more often, young gentlemen of the gentry and nobility learned the guitar really as a matter of course when they traveled abroad. We heard earlier an exchange between a, a young man and an Italian guitar master. When two grandsons of Richard Dacre, Lord Dacre, were sent to France, for example, for their education in 1670, their musical studies encompassed the guitar, the lute, the viol, and the castanets. We heard those, if you remember, at an earlier stage, as their accounts reveal. And you have an excerpt from those, in fact, on the handout. On the end of the second page, we have here, you'll see, payments to the master of the guitar and the viol for five months, two months upon the lute, playing on the castanets for music books, two pair of castanets which were bought at Paris for hiring a viol and a guitar and mending the viol that was broken for three months whilst they learnt on the lute, hired a viol and a guitar at Orléans for four months. And so it goes on and there's much more of that sort of material if you grub long enough in the archives of the British county record offices. What well, we might compare, for example, Charles Livingston, who was the Earl of Newborough, as he's represented in a satirical portrait of 1685. Uh, you have that, incidentally, also on the third page of your handout, and you'll notice when I read it, because it's very short, that it requires an affected, gallicized, or Frenchified pronunciation of the word guitar as guitare, Guitare being the standard, in fact, 17th century and 16th century French form. So it says, of all our travelled youth, notice travelled youth, that I, notion of studying abroad, none dare with Newborough via for the bel air. He is so French in all his ways, loves, dresses, swears a la Française, sings to the spinet and guitare these gentle ways to charm the fair. Now, in the mid-1660s, Pepys heard an especially influential advocate sing and play the guitar. This was his cousin and patron, Edward Montague, Earl of Sandwich, who was uh, reputed to be a, a very considerable musician and eventually died in the Battle of Sol Bay, just outside Southwold, against the Dutch. The patronage of this magnate, who was a great naval commander, he'd been a big wheel under Cromwell, and he, he, he kept the same eminence uh, into the Restoration. The patronage of this man was of great importance to Pepys's career. Now, Pepys prospered through sheer diligence and native wit and hard work. That's part of the reason why he feared he was going blind. He worked late by candlelight a lot. And he needed a powerful protector. Everybody did in this world. 
and in his cousin he found one. And the diary shows that on the 17th of November, 1665, Pepys found the Earl aboard his flagship, playing the guitar and praising it, I quote, above all music in the world, because it is bass enough for a single voice and is so portable and manageable without much trouble. There's the universal commendation of the guitar that we have heard time and time again through my first series of lectures now four years ago and indeed through this series. It is excellent for accompanying the voice, it's wonderfully portable and is not difficult to manage or indeed to play if your ambitions are not set very high. That verdict sounds down through the ages. Montague was, I say, an esteemed musician, so this was prudent and princely as a commendation, and even the privacy, in the privacy of his shorthand journal. Pepys recorded it without presuming to question it. Well, although Pepys certainly wished to be respected as a gentleman by the kind of gentlemen he respected, he was too shrewd. That's an outstanding quality of the man, I think. He was too shrewd to value the guitar purely because it might confer a cosmopolitan or gentlemanly air. Pepys constantly behaved in his private life in a way that was often out of accord with what I take to be an essentially reserved and even a puritanical streak in his character. That, I think, emerges from a reading of the whole diary, rather than, as it were, just concentration on the famous libertine episodes where he either seduced someone or tried to. But Pepys knew his own mind and was always, I think, self-critical when he did choose to emulate those greater than himself. He was well aware, for example, that the Earl of Sandwich, whom he heard playing the guitar on his flagship, had a senior place in a royal court where those were most famous, sorry, most favoured, that conformed to French manners in all things. Sandwich's, the Earl's, interest in the guitar was of a piece with, for example, with his decision to hire French servants and to take other steps that left Pepys bemused and even a little, despite the greatness of the man he was thinking of, even mildly censorious. Here's Pepys in a brief passage from the diary where he records having dinner with the Earl and his wife. I dined with my lord and lady, where he was very merry and did talk very high how he would have a French cook and a master of his horse, which methought was strange, but he is become a perfect courtier. That's not entirely admiring, is it? Very strange, but he is become a perfect courtier. In the end, Pepys's main route to the guitar lay rather through his articulate interest in song, I think, rather than noble or royal example, of which there was plenty. Now, Pepys was a fairly accomplished singer, and he sang whenever the opportunity arose. In boats on the Thames, in echoing and unfurnished rooms, on the leads of the house by moonshine, he was always singing. That was his main musical pleasure, apart from a little flageolet that he kept, sort of small recorder that he kept in his pocket. Now, Italian song made a deepening impression on him during the diary years, as it did, of course, on many other people, giving shape to the course of music history in later Restoration England. We all know that. In the summer of 1661, for example, Pepys hired a gentleman of the Chapel Royal, John Goodgroom, to be his singing master. 
and their first exercise was the light Italian song La Cruda La Bella, perhaps very much in the idiom of what you just heard. Uh, some two years later, Pepys was present in the Earl of Sandwich's lodgings when the master of the Chapel Royal Choristers and some of his boys sang Italian works that Pepys, with a characteristic warmth of feeling, judged to be fully the best music that I ever yet heard in all my life. That also is very Pepys, isn't it? The development, though, of this Italian at taste was gradual and at times halting. When Pepys heard a work by Carissimi in the summer of 1664, his response was guarded and possibly ironic. Fine it was indeed, and too fine for me to judge of. I'm not quite sure what the tone of that is, but again, I don't think it's entirely admiring. Too fine for me to judge of. What Pepys really wanted to hear, I think, was English song marked by an Italianate concern for the sense of the text, the rhetorical movement, and the spoken enunciation of the words. He therefore became increasingly dissatisfied with English part songs, for the manner of setting in counterpoint with all the verses, the voices tumbling one over another, obscured the clarity of the text. Here he is. I am more and more confirmed that singing with many voices is not singing, but a sort of instrumental music, the sense of the words being lost by not being heard, and especially as they set them with fugues of words one after another, whereas singing properly, I think, should be but with one or two voices at most. The diary contains quite a lot of entries where Pepys thinks in a very articulate and thoughtful manner about song and what he admires in song and what works best in song. So Pepys was ready to cultivate an art of accompanied solo song where the music, in the language of the period, humours the conceit of the words, brings out the, the meaning of the text. And for this, a guitar laying a discreet carpet of harmony under the voice as it passes by was ideal. So, by the early months of 1671, when Pepys was no longer keeping his diary, he decided to obtain a guitar from Italy. For someone who once considered ordering a little harpsichord because, I quote, it will do my business as to finding out of chords, this was a wise, in some ways perhaps even an inevitable step. So how did he go about it? Pepys had a very useful contact in Thomas Clutterbuck, who was the English consul in Livorno, who regularly sent home shipments of fine goods to London, as those with government postings in foreign ports often did, both at the request of others and for their own private gain. Clutterbuck was ideal for Pepys's purpose because he was also a navy contractor and therefore had much to gain from doing Pepys a service, even, let us not conceal it, from offering him a bribe. Bribery, of course, was one of the principal ways in which restoration commerce worked at this level. On the 27th of March, Pepys accordingly wrote to Clutterbuck, and although his letter is lost, Clutterbuck's reply of 1st of May survives in the Bodleian Library, where I've uh, seen it, complete with, I think, with its uh, envelope, and includes this assurance from Clutterbuck to Pepys. By Captain Bowen, you may expect one of the best guitars this country affords and likewise some of our best compositions and airs and other trifles.
Events took a new turn later that same year when Pepys decided to send abroad for, and I quote, a man of learning and a great musician. He wrote to his old friend Thomas Hill, a merchant then residing in Lisbon. And on the 14th of April, Hill replied, again, the letter is in the, the dossier in the Bodleian Library, commending a young musician named Cesare Morelli, who was keen to find employment in England. Despite his name, Morelli was actually uh, born in Flanders. He could sing to plucked instruments with a great skill. He spoke Latin, Italian, French, and Spanish, all of which was guaranteed, I think, to please Pepys. In October, uh, Pepys's friend Hill wrote again, praising Morelli for his manner of singing, alla italiana di tutta perfezione, most perfectly in Italian manner, a slight affectation of phrase, Hill breaking into Italian in the midst of his letter that says much about the tastes and interests he shared with Pepys. Enclosed with his second letter was another from Marelli himself in Italian, that's also in the dossier, expressing an eagerness to come and work with Pepys. All went well. And by June 1675, Marelli was installed among the other servants in Pepys's lodgings at Derby House, the new Admiralty headquarters between Whitehall and Westminster. He was to remain with his new master for just over a decade, and one of his principal tasks was to make the arrangements and guitar accompaniments for Pepys, then copy them out. So it's high time we had another example, I'm sure you'll agree, from Pepys' songbooks. The composer is again uh, Cesare Morelli, as it was in the first piece we heard, but this time the words are actually by Sir Francis Bacon. You have the, the text, I think, the world's a bubble. Once again, in fact, the tone of the poetry is admonitory and dark. Not at all, really, the kind of thing that we often associate with insouciant and libertine peeps, but a, a, quite a lot of the material he had collected is rather somber in tone. And here we're shifting into English, of course, and into an English declamatory style. This is, I think, the kind of Italianate English song that peeps really wanted. The world's a bubble. The world's a bubble And the life of man Less than a span In his conception Wretched From the woods tomb, burst from his cradle, and brought up to years with cares and fears, who then to frail mortality shall trust, out limbs on water, and but rides in dust. With sorrow, here we live oppressed. What life is best? Courts are but only superficial schools to dandle fools. A 
Very soon after Pepys was joined by Morelli, the two of them were engulfed by catastrophe, the greatest catastrophe, in fact, of Pepys's career. And paradoxical as it may seem, it was this disaster that prompted Pepys to begin or to accelerate the work of compiling his collection of guitar-accompanied song. On the 13th of August, 1678, Charles II was informed of a Catholic conspiracy to murder him, to impose arbitrary government, and to return England to popery. The secret agents of this new insurgency were to be Jesuit assassins carrying daggers under their cloaks, and more broadly, Catholic sympathizers of the heir to the throne, James Duke of York, the future, of course, James II. Pepys was immediately implicated not least because his servant, Morelli, was both a foreigner and a Catholic. A former butler, whom Pepys had dismissed, named John James, and some other exalted enemies, all able men and women acquire enemies, now charged Pepys with being a Catholic traitor. He was in danger of being charged with the capital crime of treason. It is an extraordinary thought that this man, whom so many of us associate with the lightness and insouciance of life where sensations made him mighty merry, 
so much of the time, passed uh, more than a year with that most terrible of judicial punishments, the punishment for treason, hanging over his head. Much time and some lives, of course, were lost before this so-called popish plot was exposed as a fraud. Now, when the conspiracy was alleged, Catholics were forbidden to remain within a 30-mile radius of London. And since Morelli refused to renounce his Catholicism, despite attempts to convert him to Protestantism initiated by Pepys, Pepys sent him to Brentwood in Essex on the coaching and therefore the postal route from London to Yarmouth. Master and servant were now compelled to communicate by letter. And since Pepys kept the uh, papers from this turbulent period of his life, there does actually survive a restoration gentleman's dealings with his guitar master in written form. Quite a full dossier that makes for anyone interested in these things, as you can imagine, fascinating reading. Some are the originals and some are fair copies. One of the letters, dated 25th of September 1679, reveals why Pepys turned to the guitar at this time and can therefore be said, I think, to frame the entire correspondence. Indeed, the whole enterprise of collecting this remarkable library of songs. The little knowledge in music which I have, wrote Pepys to Morelli, never was of more use to me than it is now. Under the molestations of mind, which I have at this time more than ordinary to contend with. The dossier of letters also shows Pepys giving instructions to Morelli, and we have some of these on the very end of the handout. You've got Pepys giving three particular instructions there to Morelli about how he should copy these songs out. The first, as you can see, is to do it in as legible a letter of note as you can, for the ease of my eyes. You see, Pepys had not entirely lost the fear that his sight might desert him. And number two, to take care that the words do stand as just under their proper notes as may be, out of the same regard to the ease of my eyes. And finally, though there are more, in fact, I've just given you three, to begin every several piece upon a particular paper and upon the left side of the sheet when it is opened according as you have done in your song, no, no, it is in vain, that I may have as much in view at once as I can before I am obliged to turn over the leaf. These, I think you'll agree, are the commands of an exacting patron who was accustomed to working late, at the late into the night uh, with documents produced to a high standard of penmanship by his navy clerks. So in circumstances far from ideal, with master and servant separated, Morelli composed or arranged a substantial repertoire of guitar-accompanied song for Pepys. He then produced fair copies on folio-sized sheets of good quality paper that Pepys must have posted to him from London. The pieces are either new compositions by Morelli, and we've heard some of those, made with Pepys's uh, baritone voice in mind, or they're Morelli's arrangements of existing works transposed downwards to accommodate his master's vocal range. There are songs in French, including arrangements of airs from two operas by Lully, together with Italian pieces by Stradella and Carissimi, among others. The settings of English poets mostly in a declamatory style, 
include uh, works by Davenant, Ben Jonson, and Shakespeare, among others, with even a setting of Hamlet's principal soliloquy, to be or not to be. A difficult libretto, I shall think, for any composer, but one to which Morelli responds in a spirited fashion, as you will soon hear. There's a substantial amount of music for Latin and English psalms, settings of text from divine service, a guitar-accompanied creed, a, get, a colossal guitar-accompanied litany or invocation to the saints that covers about 40 openings. I have no idea what Pepys would have done with that. But notice how much of it, incidentally, is Pepys the devout Christian rather than Pepys the Restoration Libertine. There's even a small handful of pieces in Spanish. In the words of his now-departed patron, the Earl of Sandwich, this is Pepys discovering that the guitar is, and I quote again, bass enough for a single voice and so portable and so manageable without much trouble. So, I end this lecture a little early because we have other things to follow and we've got some music about to come. I end this lecture and I end this series and indeed end my term as Gresham Professor of Music with what is perhaps the most unexpected, to me anyway, perhaps to you, of all the materials I've put before you. Morelli's setting for voice and guitar of Hamlet's great soliloquy to be or not to be. To be strummed by a restoration gentleman in his house. Who would have thought it? Well, I've made many friends in the course of these lectures. I thank you for your letters and emails and your company. So may I say to you, as my last valedictory remark, may you never suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or experience any of the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, to be or not to be. Sleep, to sleep, 
a chance to dream. I fares the rub, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us That makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, the poor man's contumelies. The pangs of despised love, the law's delays, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his creator's make with a barefoot kid. Discovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Makes cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sickly with a pale cast of thought, and enterprises of greatest pith and moment with this regard. The currents turn around. 